Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. And welcome back. You're listening to the Fem South podcast, and I'm your host, Lee. It's been a little while since we have put out a podcast. In fact, it's been a couple of months. And this is for so many different reasons. I mean, one is school started and things got busy with COVID and the pandemic and trying to figure that whole situation out. But our area also got hit by a hurricane recently, Hurricane Sally, and then another one after that. Um, but Hurricane Sally did some real damage to our community, and it's been taking us quite some time to really fully recover. And although we've been reading books and we've been going strong on that side, we haven't been able to get it together to get any podcast recorded. And can I just stop and say for a moment that we are so excited to have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win the election. I mean, most of our members are living in a red state trying to be feminists trying to be good feminists in a red state. And so this win is such a victory. And it's also a victory for women, of course, because Kamala Harris is the first female vice president and first woman of color vice president. It's also interesting because, you know, we're going to be talking about domestic violence. And Joe Biden was one of the co-authors of the Violence Against Women Act of 1994 that Bill Clinton signed into law just three years after the Anita Hill hearing. And so it's interesting how it all ties together now, coming full circle with Joe Biden, of course, being our next president. And so I just have to say that real quick. This particular podcast is about domestic violence and um, emotional abuse, or otherwise known as intimate partner abuse. And it's really important right now because of all the things that are going on in the world, all of the stressors that we're feeling, all of the changes due to the pandemic, and of course, having to isolate and stay at home. And so our book club read Rachel Louise Snyder's book, No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. And we read this and we're hoping to get the podcast out in October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. But like I said, with so much going on, it just didn't happen. But we selected this topic, well, because many of the women in our book club group have actually experienced domestic violence or emotional abuse. And we know that this is a really important issue for women, for children, for even men who have experienced abuse. I mean, really, this is just a problem that is nationwide, that is global. And so we chose Rachel Louise Snyder's book um, just to give us a current overview of the situation. And it turned out to be a really interesting book, a very accessible book. Um, her narrative style is very fluid. 
She's a great storyteller. She's an amazing investigative journalist. And so she researched several cases that ended up in homicide and really looked at the system and all of the cracks in the system that didn't prevent the homicides from happening. So it's really eye-opening. But for some women who hadn't experienced that level of violence, it felt a little bit um, maybe inaccessible in that regard. And so we kind of struggled with this book, actually, to be perfectly honest, because of that reason, but also because so much was going on this summer. So much is going on in our nation right now. So a lot of people felt like just to add on one more layer of a very heavy topic was just, you know, emotionally overwhelming. But I will say that when we did finally sit down and talk about this book in our group discussion, it turned out to be one of our best book club discussions because so many women have experienced this. So many women were really holding on to the shame. And we had a lot of really breakthrough moments where women were able to talk about some of their more difficult and traumatic experiences in a group of supportive women. And so I think that Again, this is just such an important topic that unfortunately has so much shame around it that it's really difficult to have these deep and meaningful conversations and these deep and meaningful breakthroughs in some groups because they may be avoiding the topic. Before we move on to our special guest, I wanted to give a few stats that Snyder gives in her book. She says, between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. She also says 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partner. So 20 people every minute. The World Health Organization called it, quote, a global health problem of epidemic proportions. In addition, a study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. So those are some pretty shocking stats, and it's even more alarming to find out that we don't have enough national conversation around this topic and not enough support for these women. And one of the reasons why I'm interviewing my special guest today, who I'll introduce in just a moment, she's the executive di director of The Lighthouse, is because we only have just a few shelters that cover a very broad area. And very few people seem to really know about this shelter. So one of the things that I really wanted to do as a part of our reaching out to the community is to interview the lighthouse and to bring awareness to this shelter so that people will know that it exists and also to help fund and provide resources for the women and the families that they service. Because they actually do an enormous amount of work on top of providing a shelter and a safe space for these women, which we'll learn about momentarily in my interview with the executive director. So here is the interview that I recorded with the executive director of the lighthouse. Ryan Irvin. I hope you enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about domestic violence. 
And as typical, we like to, after we read a book and discuss a book, go out into our community and talk with somebody who is actually doing the work related to the topic within the book. And so today I have with me Ryan Irvin, who is the executive director of The Lighthouse. And The Lighthouse is our women's shelter. It is a dual program providing service to both victims and survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence, or otherwise known as intimate partner violence. And Ryan has been with The Lighthouse for 26 years now. So she is an expert in all things domestic violence, and I'm so happy to have her on the podcast to talk with me about this really important topic. So thank you, Ryan, for joining me. Thank you, Lee, for having me. So I guess we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, My first question, Ryan, has to do with the pandemic and how the pandemic has affected women and just your daily activities in the shelter. Um, There's been a lot of articles that have been published lately talking about the rise in domestic violence cases because of the pandemic, because, you know, women are stuck at home with their abuser because, you know, not being able to work and and things like that. So can you talk to this? Are you seeing an increase here with domestic violence cases? And what are some other issues that you're seeing as a result of this pandemic? Well, first of all, No one was prepared for a pandemic. Let's just say that. And as a provider for victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, we interact with victims and survivors daily, multiple victims and survivors daily. So when you run a shelter facility and you have a pandemic and media-wise, there is this great fear of exposure, your program or your facility is not exempt from that. We took some some very drastic measures initially when the pandemic um, first was discovered, if you will. And part of those measures were or was to limit the number of people we could serve within our facility. We pretty much scrambled to make sure that we had safety measures in place, policy in place to protect both the people we serve as well as the staff that serves those individuals. So we cut our capacity for our facility in half. Um, we, we played around with shifts to make sure that we decreased exposure for the, those staff persons providing services. We discontinued all community outreach for the safety of those we served as well as the community itself. Everything was shut down. So our access was shut down. We were no longer able to interact with victims in the court system. We were no longer able to advocate for them and help them navigate that process. We really didn't know what was happening, but we knew that we had to continue to serve. So we did everything that we could to continue to serve, and we never shut our services totally down. Now, as far as the increase in domestic violence during the pandemic, I would say that the understanding is that there was an increase in domestic violence, and the expectation was that there would be an increase in domestic violence. That's for several different reasons. When you issue stay-at-home orders, and people have lost their employment, and you put abusers 
and victims in a space together for 24 hours, there's no access. There's no way to flee safely without increasing one's danger. So we're talking about access to crisis lines and law enforcement community partners, such as the school systems, healthcare providers, anyone that a victim may potentially access to pursue help. So a lot of that was pretty much eliminated. So victims were stuck in homes where if there were violence, it was not being reported. So although we expected and anticipated an increase because you've got people home together 24 hours a day, you've got um, stressors that just make the situation so much worse but don't cause the situations, the incidences of domestic violence pretty much increase. But we didn't see an increase in calls. We didn't see an increase in pursuit of shelter. We didn't see an increase of flight are fleeing from domestic violence because, again, the limited access. So for us, it was very upsetting because we knew that this was going on, but we were limited in our ability to do anything about it. So our expectations then was when the stay-at-home orders were lifted, when people were able to get out, when people were able to go back to work and children went back to school, then the access would be there again. And so the reporting would increase. And that is pretty much what we're seeing now, although there are still limitations on us socially and our movement in the community, we are seeing an increase in individuals asking for and accessing services. Yeah, so it sounds like when they come back and do the reports that the numbers alone will not reflect the reality, right? Correct. Hmm. Can you talk then a little bit about some of the services that you provide in terms of a shelter? And then you also mentioned um, what you do in the legal realm as well. Mm -hmm. We provide a 24-hour shelter, which means that it is manned by trained, qualified staff 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have a 16-bed facility, so we're able to house 16 individuals comfortably but we definitely can house more than that, considering um, moms and or parents and children sometimes double up, siblings double up. And if we have to, then we use other spaces to accommodate. So again, we have a 16-bed facility. We have a 24-hour crisis line for both our domestic violence services as well as our sexual assault services. We provide um, Domestic violence counseling and crisis intervention, sexual assault counseling and crisis intervention, prevention education in the community, which includes prevention programs in our schools, as well as um, among our community partners. In addition to those, we provide court advocacy in the court systems. And that is not an attorney service, that is an advocate service, which means that we do a lot of hand-holding, a lot of explaining, a lot of walking individuals through the process so that they are aware of what their rights are and what the expectations are while they, they navigate that system. We assist with the process of filing for protection from abuse orders, which is also called PFAs. 
we do accompaniment to PFA hearings. We do accompaniment to criminal hearings where domestic violence is the crime. We also provide a weekly support group for victims and survivors of domestic violence, as well as children's educational group to the children of those individuals who attend our support group. We provide transitional housing services and supportive housing services, which includes not only uh, housing, but it includes housing support, which is assistance with deposits utility deposits, temporary assistance with rent, temporary assistance with utilities, so that individuals can obtain and maintain permanent housing once they have left their domestic violence situation. So that's a lot. I mean, I was really shocked to hear how much you guys actually really do in this community. And you service such a wide um, area. Can you say just a little bit about the broad area that you service and also why only one shelter is that something that is uh, indicative of a larger problem with funding or something like that can you talk about that well we started off 26 years ago as the Baldwin County Domestic Violence Shelter and so we were um, only serving Baldwin County since then, we have grown in our service area and now serve Monroe, Conecuh, and Escambia counties as well. And that is a result of our statewide commitment as a partner agency in the state to statewide services. So if a shelter, for whatever reason, has to discontinue services, we are all committed to coming together and making sure that statewide services continue to be available to victims and survivors of domestic violence. So we assumed counties as a result of other programs no longer being able to exist for various reasons. So that seems like then a long way for some women to travel in order to get shelter. So that could be a real problem for women who live out in some of these uh, counties that are what could be a hundred miles or more away from the shelter. Absolutely. Uh, it sounds like a problem. And it can be. It can, it can serve as a deterrent for some individuals because part of being able to successfully flee you know, unlike most people may may believe or understand is knowing that there's a support system around you and being familiar with the area around you and the resources that are available around you. So this sometimes can be considered a complete relocation. Although it's embraced by some, others are very discouraged by it, afraid of it, and so are not prepared to make that kind of a leap when trying to get out of a situation. So it, it can definitely be a problem for a number of individuals, the distance, the feeling of being isolated from their support system can be very difficult to, to deal with. Yeah, that was one of the um, key points in the book that we read that Snyder talks about is how um, disruptive going to a shelter can be for women, especially women with children, pulling them out of school, in some cases having to take time off of their jobs in order to do it, or even, you know, um, the threat of losing their jobs. Uh, it's a real issue. And so, um, you know, and your shelter is an emergency shelter, so it's not a long-term living facility. 
And so that temporary uprooting can be devastating for women and certainly be a deterrent for seeking help. Sometimes we we hear individuals say, why do I have to make all of these changes? Why am I the one that has to uproot? Why am I the one that have to leave my home? And yes, that's very discouraging and, and disruptive. However, our response is, is that you're the one that needs to be safe. That's a great question. You know, I can imagine what that would feel like, have you being the victim of violence and and the perpetrator gets to stay put and be, you know, nothing changes for this person. And that's really a reflection, I think, of the law and the way the law handles the perpetrator, right? Or am I... It, it depends. Sometimes individuals flee and the law is not involved at all. Mm-hmm. So it's not one is not contingent upon the other. Individuals can make a decision to call the crisis line and say, I need a safe place to go. And while processing through and seeing that maybe he's still able to come and go as he please and go to work and, and he doesn't have the, the pressures of figuring out how to take care of young children or how to start over can be frustrating, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the law created it because every individual that comes into shelter is not in touch with the law as far as having connected with law or reached out to the law enforcement agency and asked for help and was denied or um, slighted in any way. So we don't we don't make it grounds for someone accessing our services that they first access the legal system. Mm, that's interesting. And so that maybe that's a good segue into my question about the police and the police's role in domestic violence. And you um, have a, a very specific relationship with the police. And, you know, right now in the media, in the world, there's a lot of discussion about about police reform. Um, what is your relationship with the police and what are some of the issues that you see that need to be dealt with with the police, if you can talk about that? I feel like we have a pretty good relationship with law enforcement. The majority of the referrals that we get come from law enforcement, whether that be while on the scene responding to the crime of domestic violence or once a victim shows up and want to report the crime of domestic violence. Either way, we get a number of referrals from law enforcement. They accompany or transport victims to us so that they can get out of their situation safely and remain safe while en route to our facility. So law enforcement has been a huge support for our agency, so we count on them quite a bit. As far as as any reform or anything like that, we we always partner or are willing to partner with law enforcement for training as it relates to what we do every day. And we provide services to domestic violence victims and sexual assault victims. So that's where our relationship is, is as it relates to what we do. Can you talk a little bit about the type of training that you do give to the police officers? What What are some of the things that you you help them understand? Well, what we do is we want them to know what our services are so that when they're out there interacting with victims, they're able to make appropriate referrals 
to our agency for services. We want them to know that we are a resource. We want them to know that they have the resources to provide to victims. We provide them with information as far as handouts about our agency and services that our agency provides. In addition to that, we, we will do any training around how to get victims to us safely what our protocols are, and reinforce the relationship that currently exists between us and law enforcement. So then that kind of leads me to another question and something else that's been floating around in terms of police reform, and that is the idea of having a therapist on board on a response team that goes out and responds to domestic violence calls. And a therapist in turn that would be, you know, there to provide counseling and support for the victim in this case. Do you think that that's a good idea? Do you think that that is something that is needed? I think that that's something that's been explored, not just in the state of Alabama, but around the country. It depends on funding opportunities. And as far as, as thoughts about it, advocates tend to work very closely with law enforcement agencies in the community. Some do accompany, as I said before. However, that would definitely depend on the relationship because we respect each other's roles in the community. We're not law enforcement and they're not advocates as far as specific domestic violence and sexual assault advocates doing the work that we do. So, but they do advocate as part of their job every day in their efforts to connect individuals to resources. But we respect their role and they respect our role. So again, anytime that there's an opportunity to partner with law enforcement, that should always be embraced. But law enforcement here do a really good job of making the referrals. And a lot of times, again, that happens on the scene. So if they see where a victim could benefit from speaking to us, they will call us and put that victim on the phone. Or they will hand that victim the information that they need at that particular time so that they will have access to us as a resource. So that's part of that training is to empower law enforcement with as much information as possible so that they feel like they can respond as best they can when they arrive on the scene of a domestic violence or sexual assault situation. So one of the issues that uh, Snyder talks about in her book is what I think a lot of times might happen, and you can speak certainly more to the truth of this, but oftentimes when women call the police or ask you know, the police to get involved, there's also a sort of retracting of that once maybe the police arrive or even when it comes time to perhaps file a complaint against the husband because, of course, this is a moment where all of a sudden now I've become even perhaps more vulnerable because now he's angry that I've called the police or, you know, or there's nothing that really is really going to happen. Even if he gets arrested, he's coming right back to the home, in which case, even perhaps more angry, and so my life is in more danger. And so there's this taking back, and in some cases, women seeming to take the side of their abuser, even in front of police officers or even in front of the law, for that very reason, which sometimes then gets misinterpreted as the woman fabricating the abuse, right? So that's kind of the narrative that she talks a little bit about in her book. 
Um, so is that a part of, I mean, do you see that that happens quite often? And is that a part of like making sure the police officers are aware that this is something that does happen and this is the reason why? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Victims do sometimes retract their stories. The call to law enforcement is not always in an effort to obtain an arrest. It is just to stop the abuse. It is to stop whatever is going on. Doesn't necessarily mean that that victim wants that abuser to go to jail or anything bad to happen to them. They just want it to stop. And there are laws that allow law enforcement to come in and do a warrantless arrest if they have probable cause to do so. And victims aren't always aware of that. So their call may result in an arrest that they were not even prepared for. And so at that point, they do recognize that there's a potential escalation in their their danger level because now he's getting arrested. And yes, he's probably going to come back and he's going to be even more afraid. And so at that moment, they may say, I'm fine. Nothing happened. This didn't happen. I don't want to go to jail, you know, so on and so forth. We're familiar with that and we understand that, but it does not ever mean that the violence didn't occur. So we recognize that in in a lot of instances, it's about her survival. It's about what is going to happen to me if I follow through. And if there's no systems or no support in place while she follows through, if there's no help, if there's no access to safety, then she may not feel like she has the option to follow through. And if we treat her as if she's wrong and not with a level of understanding necessary to support her or for her to feel supported, then she's not going to follow through. So there are a lot of different factors that come into play when a victim takes back their their statement or their story. And sometimes it doesn't happen necessarily when you come to the scene of the crime. It could happen when we get in court. Sometimes it's because he's made a promise that she sincerely wants him to keep. Or because there's something that happened to her. Maybe that is the fear of having to do this by herself. Maybe it's the inability to financially support her family. Maybe it's because there are other threats that exist that none of us know about. She may take back that story by the time she gets to court. So we don't stand in judgment of victims of domestic violence. We try to meet them where they are and ensure them that our services are here regardless of the decision they make. Because we know that on average, it takes five to seven times for a victim to leave for good before she leaves for good. Sometimes it takes more than that. Sometimes it takes less than that. But we understand that it takes some time for them to get out and get out for good. Yeah. What is involved in a woman getting away, you know, from her abuser? Can you talk a little bit more about that? You've mentioned some things you know, trying to get her stuff together, knowing that she might, even if she has children, making arrangements. And that can take a long time. Can you talk a little bit about, like, what are some of these things that you see that women are having to do and why it can take several years in order for them to be able to leave, or even if they do leave, to be able to get their lives back on track? It takes feeling like you can be safe and successful. It takes feeling like you have the support in place to 
be able to continue to move forward. It feels like, or it takes feeling like you are being believed. And that is huge, that when a victim reaches out for help, that we believe her first. As opposed to trying to place blame on that victim or trying to figure out where she failed or went wrong. So it is very difficult for someone to get out if they don't feel like or they're not being validated by systems. In addition to that, just being able to financially, physically, emotionally support your family once you get out of that situation where you may have been completely dependent on an abuser, which is part of an abuse tactic, is to create such a level of dependency where you feel like you can't escape. So being able to successfully care for your family can be very difficult when you get out of a domestic violence situation. So there are a lot of things that are a lot of barriers. Sometimes it could be language. Sometimes it could be your, your status in this country and being sponsored by an abuser who carries your status literally in their pocket. It could also be your history, whether it be mental health, whether it be financial stability, whatever it is that an abuser can use to further control you and manipulate you and isolate you. It could be relationship breakdowns with family and friends. An abuser sometimes can invest a lot of time and energy in isolating you, which is very effective. So when you do decide to flee and you look around and there's no one there to help you or support you, then it makes it that much more difficult. It also validates his efforts to, to make you feel less loved and, and more alone in the world and that he's pretty much the only one you got. So again, there are a lot of barriers, whether it be the, the lack of education, the lack of job history, multiple births of children and, and no ability to obtain childcare. There are just so many different barriers that, that may stand in the way. And so our goal as a domestic violence agency is to try to help remove as many of those barriers as possible while partnering with community agencies to provide for those individuals. Yeah, it sounds like there are so many barriers and it just reinforces the reason why women need to support each other in education, in community, in financial responsibility and financial empowerment, reproductive empowerment. All of these things feed into what makes a woman vulnerable to domestic violence. And then, of course, if she experiences it, that much more challenging to get out of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is a spot, I think, where we can take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the nuances of emotional and sexual abuse. And we're also going to go over the escape plan for getting out of an abusive relationship and what families and friends can do for their loved ones who are experiencing intimate partner abuse. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so 
I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. So we're back from our break and you're listening to the Fem South podcast. I'm Lee, your host, and I'm here talking with Ryan Irvin, who is the executive director of The Lighthouse, which is a women's shelter that provides shelter and resources for women who are experiencing domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse, intimate partner abuse. After we read this book, we discovered that it was more about the escalation of domestic violence into femicide and homicide. But the title is No Visible Bruises, which makes you think that it's about the emotional abuse. And I think for a lot of women, it hasn't necessarily escalated or may not even escalate into any kind of physical abuse. And so for the women that are experiencing emotional abuse, they don't have a physical evidence that anything's happening. So when you said it's important to be believed, how do the women who are going through an emotional abuse navigate that when it's even more challenging to prove the abuse or even recognize it as abuse in your own relationship? Get information. Education is everywhere. You can access crisis lines just to have a conversation. Sometimes, sometimes when we question whether or not this is abuse or if I'm just overreacting, it helps to talk it through with someone who has that insight and education and expertise to be able to help you better understand what it looks like to validate those feelings that you may have that this is not okay. So I don't think that one has to be physically abused to be a victim. And I think that that's one of the myths that a lot of people face in, in society that domestic violence is so narrowly defined as physical abuse when it is so much bigger than that. The, the emotional abuse and the isolation are, are extremely effective in domestic violence situations and escalate to physical when the emotional and the psychological and the isolation is no longer effective. So yes, you want individuals who feel like they're being emotionally abused to access help to possibly prevent it from escalating to something so much worse. Yeah, and I think a part of that is, you know, the fear of calling a hotline when you don't see yourself as a or as someone who is experiencing actual physical violence, because that hotline seems reserved for that moment, right? And you're not there. You're not that person. Because we do have a stigma against what an abused person or what a, a victim looks like. Nobody wants to be a victim, right? Our culture's done a great job at making people avoid being victims. So I think that on some level, that's where the, unfortunately, where the victim of emotional violence sits in this kind of gray area, not being able to validate the abuse, not knowing where to turn to ask the question, is this abuse? Do I call a hotline? Do I go to a therapist? Can I afford a therapist? How long is it going to take me to talk to my therapist before we get to a point where she's comfortable saying, I think you're being you know, emotionally abused? That could take 
months of therapy too. And that's mm-hmm. if the, the victim is being fully honest. There's a lot of barriers, I feel like, for the, uh, um, for the victim of the emotional abuse. So do you guys have any kind of um, maybe literature on like what constitutes emotional abuse mm-hmm. for the women who are too afraid to even maybe ask? Well, we have a website, thelighthouseofbeacon.org that carries a lot of good educational information. So, and there's a safe escape from that site if if you are in a space where someone may come behind you to access your your searches. So you can go there and gain information. You have the Alabama Coalition Against Domestic Violence's website. You also have the um, National Network, NNADV, NNEDV, that has a lot of statistics online and a lot of signs to look for. The information is there. So if if one doesn't want to call a crisis line because they feel like it's reserved, first of all, it's not. It's reserved for you. And if you feel like you need our services, there's no criteria that that needs to be met in order for you to access our crisis line and ask any questions about domestic violence, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional or psychological abuse. We get told that even in our individual domestic violence and uh, domestic violence counseling sessions that I don't want to waste your time. I know somebody else needs you. And our response is and should always be, we're here for you. Right now, you're the one that needs us. So you're the one that we're going to serve. So we don't value any one person over the other based on the domestic violence that they experience because it's all bad and none of it is okay. And there's always the possibility of this escalating to something as tragic as death. Some domestic violence go from zero to a hundred and there's really no middle ground. There's really no gray area. So we don't want that to be the case. So we serve in, in some capacity or the other any victim of domestic violence. And as you're saying that, I'm wondering if some of the, ch- the women are really afraid, women with children are really afraid about what would happen if they start to seek help in terms of their children being taken away from them. Because I know that this is a tactic used by the abuser to threaten to take the children away in court. And so I know that even though that might not be a realistic fear um, it is still a fear implanted in a lot of women's minds when they are mothers. Absolutely. That is, it's, it's a real fear. It's a legitimate fear for them. Even if it's not supported by systems, even if, you know, no one is going to come in and take their children because they did the right thing by fleeing the situation it's still a legitimate fear. It's something that's being fed to them on a regular basis. If you leave me, um, I'm going to make this report. I'm going to make that report. I'm going to, if you go into a shelter, then you're going to have our children in a homeless situation and, and I'm going to have to report it and you're going to lose custody of the kids. And those threats are real. They are no less real than I'm going to kill you. So an abuser will stop at nothing to control his or her victim. And so whether we know it and we can say it, they know their abuser better than we do. And 
they feel powerless a lot of the times in, in combating some of the things that are said and done by an abuser. So that fear is something that we address on a regular basis. If you come here, this is not what we're going to do. Because, of course, they're being fed that those people at that shelter are going to call DHR and have the kids taken. Is that what you want? And the only thing that we can do is assure her that that's not our role. Our role is to protect that unit and to do whatever we can to help them access safety. If other entities have to become involved, it will be specifically because children are in danger, not because she's a bad mom. For family members, when we were reading this book, we had several members in our book club group who have daughters who were going through this, and they just feel so helpless because they don't know what to do. Do you have any advice for family members who, um, who are witnessing this and just feel helpless? Don't turn your back. Even when you think you've had enough, don't turn your back. Don't validate an abuser's threats or an abuser's words by discontinuing your support, by turning a blind eye, by saying that I'm not going to hear it anymore or don't call me anymore. That is exactly what an abuser is waiting on because it is effective isolation. So don't be part of the isolation. Continue to support that individual even while protecting yourself because emotionally this is draining on any support system. Find out what's available and then make the appropriate referrals. If you can't be the listening ear, if you can't be the helping hand and find someone who can, because that in and of itself is support. Everyone is not going to be ready to leave when we say so. We know this. We do this every day. And we want to just go and rescue everyone, but we recognize that we're limited and families have to recognize that they're limited as well. And that it takes time and it's not as easy as we think it is for someone to flee. But have patience and respect it and, and remain supportive because an abuser relies on you to turn your back. So I know that you guys hand out information about a woman's safety plan. And that's a really important thing to have in place. So when she does decide to leave, can you go over a little bit about what the safety plan looks like? Um, safety plan involves several different components. Um, one includes passwords, sometimes with your children, so that if there's a separation and an abuser is denied access, then sometimes you have to involve the children in their own safety by giving them passwords so they'll know who is safe to go with and who is not safe to go with. You also want to collect important documents. One of the ways an abuser lures his victim back is by taking away her access to resources and help by taking birth certificates and tax documents and IDs and anything that an individual may need to start over. And so sometimes they negotiate meetings and interactions with the idea that he'll return documents if she just have a conversation. So before a situation escalates, prepare by making copies of all of those important documents in such a way that he doesn't recognize that they're not there. The copies are what you have and not necessarily the originals. He can still feel secure knowing that all of those originals are still in place, not knowing that there are copies somewhere. 
it's, it's the stuff that we take when we think that there's a hurricane coming and we don't want it destroyed. Those are the things that you want to collect now before there is some kind of escalation and just put it somewhere safe. It may mean putting it in an envelope and sending it across country to a family member and saying, just keep this. I may or may not need it, but just keep it safe. That also includes keys, copies of keys to vehicles, copies of keys to the home. I don't care if you have to bury it somewhere. Just do whatever it is that you can do while you feel safe so that when you are unsafe, you're not trying to think about what am I missing? What didn't I get? What didn't I take? What didn't I pack? It's already somewhere safe. You know, that's uh, just thinking about imagining somebody going through the process of all of that. You know, it really just makes me think this. It's so important to teach young women at a young age financial independence, buy things in your name, get a job, make your own money. Don't think when you get married, you're magically all of a sudden going to have somebody taking care of you, making all the decisions, make the decisions, get your life in order because we are fed in our culture with a romance story Mm -hmm. of we're going to get married. We're going to marry a wealthy man and everything, you know, is going to be taken care of for a lot of women that might be their real fantasy. And that's when we become vulnerable. And I think a lot of women also go into marriages not expecting to be beat up. And so it might take several years for it to evolve too. And so the time that you have to start making these kind of decisions can be, it seems like it can be a long period of time or it can be a really short period of time. It just depends on your situation. So if you wait until you get into the situation to get your ducks in order, you're already a little bit too late. Like you need to do all this before you even get into a a marriage, right? Like I feel like this is something that we don't say enough to young women. Take care of yourself first, right? First of all, most people don't go in a marriage preparing to get out of it. You know, they go into a marriage as a partnership. You know, I feel like that's, that's the ultimate goal is to create a partnership and not necessarily prepare for it to, or prepare for its demise. But I also think that it is empowering to have your own. But in domestic violence situations, you may have your own, but an abuser's goal is to take all of that, is to, is to remove all of that power and any threat of, of fleeing. So having your own, being educated, having a support system, Having access to community resources are all a direct threat to an individual who is abusive. It's a direct threat to their efforts to gain power and control over you. So there's going to be a lot of work to dismantle all of the work that you've done to to be independent, to have your own, to have your name and everything. Domestic violence situations are unique in that way, that it is not about empowering you. It's about an abuser gaining and maintaining power over you. We have to not only teach individuals the importance of having your own, but also how to recognize when someone's goal is to strip you of your own with the intent to control you and not with the intent to create a partnership that empowers both of you. Yeah, and that leads me to one of my final questions about reproductive rights and why is it, um, why is it so important for 
women to have access to reproductive rights, especially in domestic violence situations? First of all, um, in domestic violence situations, individuals don't have reproductive rights a lot of the time. A lot of times their reproductive rights are used to control them. So individuals may be forced into multiple births, meaning that they're having children back to back to back because this is a way to control the individual. They're not allowed to seek medical care. Therefore, they're not allowed to to seek any kind of contraception or any kind of sometimes prenatal care. It really doesn't matter because that's access. And an abuser is threatened by access. So in a domestic violence situation, your choices are, are taken away from you a lot of the times as part of that, that effort to control. So where you think that you should have this right to, to make this decision, abusers tend to be the ones making all of the decisions. And taking your rights away from you, essentially. And, ta- <laughs> and taking your rights away from you, absolutely. On so many different levels, they're taking your rights away from you. Yeah, we haven't really talked a lot about sexual abuse, and that's the other component mm-hmm. that you guys focus on. Um, but can you talk a little bit about sexual abuse and, and sexual coercion in these situations? And again, kind of piggybacking on the, the discussion about reproductive rights, but I think that they fit very well together, how are women experiencing and being vulnerable in these situations? Well, we know one in four women and one in nine men are either physically abused or sexually abused in an intimate partner relationship. And one in 10, I believe that's correct, are raped in in an intimate partner relationship. So sexual abuse is part of the abuse tactics that abusers use when they are trying to gain or maintain power over a victim. It is probably one of the worst forms of violence that that abuse can escalate to. What about sexual coercion? Do you see that as being um, maybe fitting into that gray area of, of the emotional abuse? Where do you see that fitting in? Because I asked that question. Let me just say why I asked that question. Because sexual rape is one thing. Again, just like physical abuse is clear, it's obvious. But sexual coercion is one of those areas in which I think women feel a little bit less able to identify clearly and able to and less able to have a strong voice in resistance of, right? And there's many ways that a partner can manipulate someone with with sexual coercion, which puts women in many vulnerable situations, including, of course, in some cases, unwanted pregnancies? Well, sexual coercion comes in so many different forms, actually. It, it could be supported by religion. Sometimes abusers use religion and um, the victim's inability to say no to his request for sex or her request for sex in a situation because it's their responsibility as a spouse to meet the needs of the other and um, not recognizing that you still have a choice. Individuals fall victim to those kinds of situations. Sometimes an abuser may deprive their victims of sleep, of personal time, of opportunities to do the things that they need to do if they don't submit 
to sex. They make their lives sometimes really miserable. And so victims will give in, not recognizing that this is coercion or that this is abuse, just so that they can be left alone or just so that they can get rest. Sometimes new mothers are deprived because, one, they have new babies, and two, because abusers are sometimes demanding and selfish. And you couple those things together, then you have new mothers who are submitting to or giving into pressure to have sex when they're not ready soon after birth. You have abusers who threaten to go outside of the home and find someone else to provide for their needs because you are failing them as a partner. So there's a lot of different ways that an abuser can force or coerce the victim into giving in sexually and she not necessarily recognize it as being abused, but definitely feel the pressure of it. And our role again is to help her recognize where this may be very, very wrong. Yeah, thank you for saying that because I think that is in uh, where a lot of women are and um, and maybe don't recognize it because it's not um, a visible mark of abuse necessarily. So what can people do and what do you actually need? We need financial support always to support our daily operations. We We have the support of the community when it comes to donations, and we're so grateful. And when I say donations, I mean in-kind donations as far as uh, clothing, cleaning products, things like that. We, we get those things on a regular basis. We don't take used cloth-based items for sanitary reasons. We need the support of, again, our daily operations. Funders support services and not your day-to-day operating of a nonprofit. And without operations, your nonprofit don't, don't exist. In addition, we always need volunteers, but right now we're limited in our ability to accept volunteers, but we have a sexual assault program with a response team that's primarily made up of volunteers. And so to be able to support that group by bringing on additional volunteers would just be really helpful. Again, that is right now dictated by our current pandemic and our efforts to maintain safety. But volunteers for any nonprofit is crucial and critical and necessary to maintain. We need pajamas. We need items that individuals can come in and get comfortable in. We need sweatpants and house shoes and tennis shoes. We need the individuals who come to us to be able to get out of whatever it is that they have on. Maybe they've slept in it for three days in in an effort to hide or to flee and just really need to be comfortable. So we stock more of those comfort-type clothing than we do more business-type clothing. Yeah, I think the common misperception, and I think I even had this myself when I first talked to you, is that you're sending women out from the shelter to go, you know, apply for jobs and and do professional interviews. These women are typically, you know, in your shelter, 
women who don't have resources and so who might be working, you know, a minimum wage job or, you know, need black pants, uniform shoes and things like that versus mm -hmm. the business suit, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe bath products and oils or something like that. Cause we Absolutely. have a lot of women who have this, this idea that they're going to bring a spa to you. Uh -huh. Is that something that people That's can... not something that we wouldn't consider because we really encourage self-care. We really encourage the individuals that we serve to remember how important and how valuable they are. And they really don't take the time to pamper themselves. So we do entertain opportunities for individuals to come in and show them how to do that and provide them with the resources to be able to do that. So pampering is a good thing when you've not been able to do that or have not had access for such a long time. It's hard to get an individual to focus on themselves when they've not been able to focus on themselves for the duration of their relationships. So it's important to get them grounded in not just their feelings, but in their self-care. Yeah, that's nice. And they have, do you have a lot of children that come through? We do have children that come through. We, we do have a large amount of single women that come through our program, but we do have little people that come through. Uh, sometimes it it be a whole bunch at one time, and sometimes it may be just a couple, but either way, they are victims as well, whether that means that they've observed or they've felt the tension of the abuse. Some are primary victims in domestic violence, some of them are secondary, but, but we have individuals whose primary focus are our little people because they need the support and consistency and education just as much. Yeah. Before we close out, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to inform the public about? We're here. We're here. Even through the pandemic, we're here. And our plan is to continue to be here as long as we are needed in this community. Thank you. And I think also just talking about domestic violence, continuing to have a national conversation about domestic violence is critical. And unfortunately, it's hard because there's a lot of shame around it. Even in our book club, we saw this. It was a very heavy topic. But when we really broke the book open and started talking about it, it turned out that almost every woman had experienced it in some form or another. So um, it's important to keep talking about it. And I'm so grateful that you decided to speak with me on this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, Fem South is a podcast and book club community produced in the Deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, we are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism. Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment. And we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with Fem South, you can go to our website at femsouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books online. You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. 
If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash FemSal, where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to Fem South. Mm-hmm.